Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. We're in the last chapter of Exodus. My daughter told me that I don't give people enough time to turn in their Bibles before I start reading, so I'm up here stalling. Exodus chapter 40. Um, We're going to read about the tabernacle, and we'll explain what that is if you're not familiar with that. But the word tabernacle and then the, the... Um, permanent tabernacle, which is the temple, those two words, tabernacle and temple, show up over 400 times in our Bibles. The description of its building here is from Exodus 25 to 40. There is a lot of space in our Bibles devoted to the tabernacle and to the temple and what it means that God dwells among his people. So it's for good reason that as we survey the Old Testament, we are pausing to take a good long look at what God provides for his people. I'm just going to read Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35. And the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to see your glory. Moses asked that. He asked that your glory would pass in front of him, and you held him in a cleft, and you did that for him. Lord, would you, like him, show us just a piece of what it means that you are high and lifted up and glorious to us? Would we see that and savor that today? In Jesus' name, amen. Isn't it interesting to you that the Bible as a story ends where it begins? That the end of the Bible looks a lot like the beginning of the Bible. That's interesting because the Bible is such a large book. It's a thousand page book. It takes us on a huge journey. We're going to cross three different continents. It's going to be told in three different languages. It's going to span history of over three millennia. And while we're here in our Bibles, we're going to meet people like Shamgar and Jezebel and Gomer and Zimri and Tiglath-Pileser. We're going to watch seas divide. We're going to watch the earth swallow people. We're going to watch fire from heaven and people raised from the dead. We're going to hear stories of love and war and family and comedy and tragedy. And after a thousand pages of this epic story, we're going to end where we began. Isn't that interesting? Think about the first two chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of Revelation. They sound very similar to us. Both of them are describing a world without pain or hurt or tears. Both of those worlds are very earthy. They're a celebration of God's creation. Both of them are populated by God's covenant people. And neither of those two places need a temple or an altar or a sacrificial system because there is no sin to atone for in those places. Both of them describe the perfect presence of God. Now, the setting is different. Eden in Genesis, of course, is a garden. And the new Jerusalem in Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth, is a city that we're going to dwell in forever. 
But the Bible is taking us on this journey from heaven on earth in a garden to heaven on earth in a city with a lot of story to tell in between. That should give us a clue as to what we're looking for when we go surveying our Old Testaments. You've got to see the goal. You've got to know where this thing is headed so you know what to look for. You've got to understand that God's goal is to end the story where he began the story with his perfect presence. Now, I'm totally convinced that there are two kinds of people in this world. And actually, the older I get, the more convinced I am. There are people who know how to explain a board game. And there are people who just don't. Bless their hearts, they just have no idea. And the people who don't know how to describe a board game start with the details of the board game, right? You've all sat through this. Like, they open stuff out and they just start talking. We've got dice here and we've got cards here and here's your guys and sometimes you roll and sometimes you need mana and you go forward here and you go backwards there. And by the time they're halfway into the explanation, I don't want to play anymore. This is just dumb. It doesn't make any sense and I don't want to do it. The person who knows how to explain a board game is the person who grabs you by the hand, leans across the table, looks in your eyes, and says, we're here to do one thing, okay? (laughs) World domination. That's what we're here to do. As soon as we place our armies, you and I, we're no longer friends. And the person who can capture and keep Europe and Africa and create a beachhead on Ukraine and retrace the steps of Alexander the Great, that man will prevail, and he will have all bragging rights until our next date night. And then we're going to do it all again. That's the way to describe a board game. You get the end in mind, you know where we're headed, and I'm ready to go, I'm ready to do this thing. We can do the same thing with our Old Testament. We can start with the details of the Old Testament. Hey, here's some cool things. We saw Abraham, and now we're looking at the tabernacle, and soon we're going to get to the temple, and and all that cool. And That doesn't work with board games, and that's not going to work with our Old Testaments. This morning, I'm taking you by the hand. I'm looking you in the eye, and I'm telling you this is a story about one thing and one thing only, and that is God's glorious unadulterated presence in our midst. God's whole plan of creation, God's whole plan of redemption, God's whole plan of consummation is to dwell among us, to appear glorious to us, for us to worship him with every fiber of our being. And God is so majestic He's so satisfying, he's so precious, he's so infinite that he can occupy our attention and our worship forever and ever. Amen. Nothing else can do that. Nothing else can satisfy. Not a golden calf, not a trip to the mall, not a promotion. Not porn, not Fortnite, not CrossFit, not college football. Nothing can hold and keep 
and satisfy our attention but for the thing we were created to do and that is to be consumed by the glorious presence of God. Augustine was right. Our hearts are restless. They're depressed. They're discouraged until they find that sweet rest in God and in God alone. That's what we're here for. That's the entire story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is God making his home among his people for that reason. Now, God did have his home among his people in the Garden of Eden. God created us to live in his presence, and he showed us that because he had that kind of relationship with Adam and Eve. He knew them. He spoke with them face to face. He walked with them in the cool of the garden. The Bible describes Adam and Eve as being naked and unashamed. They had nothing to hide from God. Can you imagine a relationship with God or any other person in which you had nothing to hide from that person? I can't even imagine what that would look like. And when Adam and Eve sinned against God and broke that perfect unity, God's first question is profound and it haunts us to this day. Where are you? Where'd you go? We had this fellowship together. We walked together. We knew each other. There were no secrets between us. You had no shame before me. Where are you? Sometimes I hear that question today when I am resisting God and moving away from him. Where are you? Where are you going and what are you doing? The consequence of sin is separation from God. Adam and Eve, they are banished from the Garden of Eden, never to return. It is guarded by the cherubim, the angel with the flaming sword. And that really sets up the plot of Scripture which begs the question, How can this perfect, holy, just God now, after the fall, dwell with the sinful people? How is that going to be possible once again? That's the question of the Bible. That's also the question of every human heart. If God really knew me, like if he knew what I thought about and what I did and what I didn't do, how could a God who calls himself holy and pure live and dwell with me and let me bear the name Christian? How's this going to work? That question we have today is the question that Israel had at the base of Mount Sinai. God was dwelling on the top of the mountain in all his thunderous glory and Israel was at the bottom. They were so frightened that they said, Moses, why don't you be the one to go up and talk to God for us? And he did that and then he would come down and report and even then Israel sinned against God and they worshiped the golden calf and they could have thought then and there, this is over between us. How is that going to dwell with this? And all of a sudden, God gives the answer to that question in the tabernacle. What he creates in the tabernacle and later the permanent home in the temple is God's temporary answer to the question how a holy God will live among a holy people. He is not going to reject us for our selfishness and sin. In fact, God plans here in Exodus to move into the neighborhood. He says in Exodus chapter 29, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their 
one scholar says that the Bible's story is much more about God's desire to dwell with his people than about his people's desire to dwell with God. That's the story of the Bible, and that's the story of you and I. That's why God's not asking permission. He's telling Israel what he's going to do. I'm on the mountain, you dwell in the wilderness in tents, but if you're going to be here in tents in the wilderness, then I myself as the living God, I will dwell in a tent in your midst. And you can grumble, you can resist, you can make a golden calf, you can embarrass yourself with idolatry, but I will not leave you or forsake you. I will move into your camp and I will make my dwelling among you. That's tremendous gospel news to the people of Israel. One of my favorite paragraphs in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, has to do with poop. I can't help it. I'm a middle schooler in a grown man's body. I just, I giggle when I read Deuteronomy chapter 23. Kids, look this up later. I'm not lying. This is a law. When you have a number two, You are supposed to bury it. Why? Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. Therefore, your camp must be holy. Isn't that tremendous? You can't have a bowel movement in Israel without being reminded of something tremendous. God is here. He dwells in our midst. This ain't Eden. We aren't walking with him in the cool of the day like we did in the Garden of Eden. But he is preparing us for the eternal walk with God by dwelling in our camp, in our midst. That's God's plan for his people. And so from Exodus chapter 25 to Exodus chapter 40, he gives instructions on the tabernacle. And then the people build the tabernacle and create it. I want to show a picture of it for you if you're not familiar with this. But the tabernacle, these instructions were this kind of tent that God tells the people to create. He says, you're living in tents in the wilderness. I'm going to live in your midst and I myself am going to dwell in a tent. So basically, there are three parts to this. You've got this outer courtyard. That's the big barrier that keeps just anybody from coming into God's presence and coming into his midst. And then within it, you have this very special structure, this tent, which is 45 feet by 15 feet, 15 feet tall. And it has two places within it. It's got the holy place, which is the first room that you would have walked in. And that has the menorah, that has the table with the showbread, that has the incense burning. And then on the back section, where God is dwelling in a pillar of cloud, you have what is called the Holy of Holies, which would have contained the Ark of the Covenant, and that would have been considered God's special presence among his people on earth. Now, there is a ton of material about the tabernacle. There's a ton of symbolism here that we could unpack for a long, long time. But for right now, I just want to make one connection for our purposes, and this is really deep and profound. The tabernacle has things in common with the Garden of Eden, and it has things in common with the New Jerusalem, which is heaven, heaven on earth. It's like Eden. It's like the Garden of Eden, because just as God dwelled in a special way there, he dwelled in the Garden of Eden. It's also like Eden because both Eden and the tabernacle always open to the east. 
And it's also like Eden because it contains the cherubim. The cherubim is there as he was in the garden. Now he dwells there on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Not only is it like Eden, but it also looks forward to the new Jerusalem. This is an interesting fact about our Bibles, but there are only two perfect cubes in our Bible. There are only two structures. Of all the things that, that, that God tells man to make, the altar, the incense table, the tables, the tents, everything, there are only two things that are a perfect cube. One of them is the Holy of Holies, 15 by 15 by 15, and the other is the New Jerusalem city that comes out of heaven in which we dwell forever. It's an odd dimension for a city that is as long as it is wide, as it is tall, but it is made to remind us to hearken back. This is God's holy of holies, his perfect dwelling place in which we will live. When you see it that way, you realize that the tabernacle is a placeholder between Eden and the new Jerusalem. It reminds us where we've fallen from, and it reminds us where we're traveling to with respect to God's presence. You can take that picture down. So our passage says once this thing is built and it's in the middle of the tent, the the dwelling place of Israel, verses 34 and 35, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud dwelt on it. Do you see the tension of God's presence here? Do you see that he's here, but he's not here? That that he's dwelling in the midst of his people, but he's not exactly approachable? That, That he's in the tent, but anybody who approaches The holy of holies, willy-nilly, as they will please, will be struck dead. There's a tension in God's presence when he lives in Israel. Kind of like when the president comes to Columbia. He visited, and so all our out-of-state friends are asking us, hey, did you see the president? Did you guys hang out? Did you talk a little bit? Well, kind of. I sat on 26 in bumper-to-bumper traffic as it was shut down, and I watched his motorcade pass. So, yeah, I saw the president in a way. There's a tension about this presence here in Exodus chapter 40, and it's meant to be there because it is there to show us in a profound way God's transcendence and God's imminence. Now, those are two very fancy vocab words. When we say God's transcendence, we mean that he is high and lifted up, that he is wholly other, that he dwells apart from us. And when we say God's imminence, we mean that he is here below and he is near to us. Both his transcendence and his imminence appear together in the tabernacle. Think about God's transcendence. It's important to read passages like Exodus chapter 40 because our culture has totally lost sight of the transcendence of God. You just can't talk anymore on the street about God as holy and just and high and lifted up and otherworldly. Our culture has completely rejected the idea of sin and any kind of separation from God. And when we do that, we just presume on God's nearness all the time. We always conceive of him as near and available. He's just around. He's just next to me. 
If I talk to anybody on the street, they'll tell me if they believe in God, that he's available, that I can live my life however I good and well please. And when I need God, I'll just bring him up to speed on where we're at and tell him what I need and he'll give me a boost. And that's my relationship with God because he's just around me. He's always imminent to me. Let the glory of God descending on the tabernacle blocking Moses' entrance to it, remind us afresh of just how awesome God's presence is. He's not our bro. He's not our side chick. He's not a sugar daddy. He's not a vending machine. God is not black. God is not white. God is not a mascot for our political party. He's not a get-out-of-hell-free card. God hasn't been co-opted by mainline denominations. God isn't for sale in your local Christian bookstore. You won't find him at the end of a mega church altar call that is counting decisions and not disciples. That is not God. He dwells wholly, otherly, apart from us and our best estimations to occupy him and to market him and to use him for our devices. When people try and approach God in the Old Testament, however they good and well please, things go really bad for those people. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, decide, I know God told us how to offer incense. We're going to try another way, and fire consumed them. You got the man Uzzah who saw the ark stumble, and he thought, let me just help God right here, and he touches what is untouchable, and he is struck dead on the spot. You've got King Uzziah who grabs the incense altar and says, let me be the one, not the priest, to offer my sacrifice before God. And he enters the temple in pride and he leaves covered in leprosy. God is awesome. He is resplendent. He can be terrifying to us because he is wholly other. We haven't got to the bottom of him. We can't put him in the box and he will not come to us and perform for us on our beck and call. He is God and he is glorious. But I tell you, if you begin to see the transcendence of God and his glory, you glimpse the glory of God, that is what makes God's imminence such sweet relief to us. The gospel is not that God is not that big or that our sin is not that bad or that he and I are closer than we might think. It's not that at all. God is that big and our sin is that bad and we are as far as I feared that we were, but it means that God is that good and his love is that pure and that God so loved the world he tabernacled among us. It's in spite of our sin that God moves into the neighborhood and offers his nearness to us. He does that for Israel in Exodus 
so that we will have eyes to see it in Jesus in the Gospel of John. Next month, we approach Christmas, and we're going to hear, read John 1.14, that beautiful verse, and the Word, which is Jesus, the Word became flesh and did what? He dwelt among us. You know that Greek word is also translated tabernacle? And the Word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. In Jesus, the transcendence of God becomes the imminence of God. He who was far and high and lifted up and otherworldly has become near to me. And the New Testament describes my relationship with this living God in unbelievable ways. Hebrews says, unlike the tabernacle, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. The Apostle Peter says when this happens in Christ, we now become partakers of the divine nature. We taste and see that the Lord himself is good. Paul says that we behold the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces. That haunting question, the where are you of sin at the fall in Eden, has become God's great reversal in the Emmanuel, God with us in Christ. Through him, through Jesus, you and I have sweet, personal, near communion with the transcendent, imminent, living God. Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be your name. There it is. Your farness in heaven and your nearness in fatherhood. You are transcendent and imminent. You are glorious and you are personal and near through the blood of your son Jesus. I pray that as we walk out from here, we would experience sweet communion with you in the person of Christ. We plead in Jesus' name. Amen.